0: If you brought your Bibles today and you want to follow along where we're going to be in the Scriptures, we're going to be back in 1 John. We're going to look at chapter 2 today, and uh, we just invite you to kind of follow along. Scriptures will be on the screen as we go, but it's always neat to have your Bible out and to be able to uh, to follow along. We started this series in on 1 John last week, and we talked about the fact that, that one of the things that John is trying to do as he wrote these three letters is to combat some of the false teaching that was going on in the church. John wrote about 60 years after Jesus' death, and in that 60-year span from the time that Christ uh, was crucified and, and resurrected till the time that John's writing, uh, some, a group called the Gnostics had entered into the church with some false teachings. The, the Gnostics were a group that believed they had some secret knowledge, that they were uh, maybe more intellectual, more spiritual than everybody else, and that God had spoken to them and given them some some stuff that that was just far beyond anything they had ever heard. Uh, part of their teaching that was so destructive was they, they taught that that anything spiritual was good and anything physical was evil. And while we look at it and say, man, God's spiritual and God's good and, and humans are, are, are filled with different kinds of false motives and evil stuff, that may sound good on the surface, but where they took it was, was not a good place. They took it to the place that they said because... The spiritual is good and the physical is evil. Jesus, who had been proclaimed in the gospel to be fully God and fully man, could not be that. That, he, he, that a perfect God could not take on flesh because then he would become imperfect because the flesh was evil. And so they did not allow for the divinity of Christ. They did not allow for that. They said either Jesus was not God's son, he was not divine, uh and, and he had not uh, existed with God in eternity past, uh, because if he had, then he couldn't come in the flesh because that would make him evil. Or, you know, they, they went to the other side of that where they would say, well, if he, if he really was God, then he really wasn't man in the flesh. He may have just appeared to be a man, like an angel taking on a, an appearance to be a man, but, but that he wasn't. And so they denied the, the, the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And when you do that, then... You do away with what Jesus did on the cross. It, it takes away uh, the meaning of what Christ did on the cross because if He was not one of us, then He could not die in our place, and if He was not fully God, then He could not be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so, they denied the deity of Christ, and so emptied the the gospel of its power for salvation. And so, John is written now to correct that and. And you're going to see in chapter 2 today, we're going to look at the first 14 verses, but you're going to see in chapter 2 today this, this term about the knowledge of God and, and the light and the darkness and these things that, that, that come into play. And, and John, you know, we, we talk about Thomas Kincaid being the painter of light. And if you ever looked at some of Thomas Kincaid's uh, paintings that he's done, there's always this, this light that just kind of catches your eye, and, 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 and he's known as the painter of light. Well, Jesus is the, the source of that light. Jesus is, is the light. And and so he's going to use this imagery of of light and darkness. And and when he talks about the light and the darkness, the the light is this picture of walking in great fellowship with God. Darkness is walking in something contrary or apart from God. And so he's going to come back today and talk about this this imagery and who Jesus is. And I just want to take some time and just kind of walk through this verse by verse. It's very uh, easy to understand, but it's very... um, Man, it's just... It's powerful to give you the assurance of your salvation. One of the things that today's portion of Scripture is going to seek to do was to assure the believers of that day of the salvation that they had in Christ. And part of the reason that John is having to assure them of their salvation is that these Gnostics came in and said, Well, if you don't have our secret knowledge, then you really aren't saved. Because in order to be saved, you you need more than just the, the, the stuff that Jesus taught. You need the secret stuff that we've got. So they were doubting. Some of them were doubting their salvation. Some of them were doubting whether they really had it all, whether the gospel was enough or if they needed the gospel, plus this additional book or this additional information that came with it. A lot of cults in our day will do that. They'll say, oh, you can have the Bible. That's great. But you also need our book to go with it. And our book will interpret that book to tell you what's accurate and what's not. So he's writing to bring them assurance. He's writing to remind them of some signs and some proofs of what a true believer looks like and to refute what these Gnostics were teaching in that day. Let's go back and start with chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My little children, uh, there's that personal touch of a pastor writing to his flock. I'm writing these things to you so that... So here's the reason so that you may not sin. He's trying to keep them from straying away from God. Uh, He's writing not just to a single person, but to a group. That's The the word you is is in the plural. And, And so he is writing to them and saying, I'm writing so that you as a group will not sin. You will not drift away or wander away from God. But, he said, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. Shannon asked me after church last Sunday, he says, okay, it says, you know, if anyone does sin, didn't he already say that we will all sin? Why would he say, if you sin? And, and really, when you go back and look at all this, I went back and looked at it in the Greek this week, and, and, and that word if could be translated, in case that anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. And, and, and when he talks about sin, it's actually written in an aorist tense, and I know if you haven't had Greek, that probably doesn't make a lot of sense, but eris is usually reflective looking backwards. And so really we could, we could say this. Uh, we could say, look, if or in case that anyone who has sinned, in case, so he's saying, I'm writing that you might not sin, but in case that's already happened, in case you realize that right now you're in the middle of sin, in case you realize that you've believed some of this stuff that the false teachers have told you and you've begun to drift away from God. So, so he's saying, look, you, you, you've walked with Jesus. They're his dear children. But just in case any of you have begun to drift and to buy into this false teaching, I want you to know that we've got an advocate that stands before you. An advocate before the Father. And His name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Last week we said that word propitiation uh, means that He was a complete payment for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now listen to what he's doing. These, these Gnostics would say that the only ones who were saved were those who had their special knowledge. And he's saying, no, no, Jesus died for all. Not just for us, but for the sins of the whole world. It's, it's not a select few. It's not this elite club. But what Jesus did, he did for the world. So Jesus has satisfied our sin debt. And, and knowing this should forever change our hearts. And Fill our hearts with gratitude. It's easy to read through these statements, guys, and not let them stir our hearts. It's easy to read through what, what John says here and go, okay, Jesus is our propitiation for our sin and just move on. But let that sink in for just a minute, that Jesus made complete payment for all of our sins. And not just our sins, but the sins of the whole world. And that should stir up in us this gratitude. It should do something to our heart that that changes everything. And, and where John's about to go here, guys, in this passage, is that John's going to move beyond the external. He's going to talk about the commandments. And many times we hear about keeping the commandments, and we go immediately to this list in our mind. Okay, here's the things that the Bible says I shouldn't do. Here's the things that I should do. And we begin to kind of check off our list. And and John's going to go way beyond that here today. He's going to dive in straight for the heart. So here's what he says. He says, Jesus paid for our sins, not just for ours, but for the whole the sins of the whole world. And by this, by what? Here's fix and tell us. By this we know that we've come to know him. This is, this is kind of funny to me, maybe it's not to you, but it's kind of a play on words what John's doing here. The Gnostics, the, the, the Greek word for knowledge was the word gnosko, and that's where we get this term, the Gnostics. They were, they were prideful of their knowledge, okay? And so John's going to come here and say again and again, let me tell you something that you can know, and you can know, and you can know. So he's trying to say, they tell you that that you can only know by knowing what they know. I'm telling you this is something that you can know for sure, okay? So he's talking here about our assurance. He says, and by this we can know, we can be assured that we've come to know him, to know Christ, okay? If we keep his commandments. So how do we know that we've come to know Christ? He says it's not that we've, we've come to know in order that we can be saved, But we come to know that we belong to him because we have already entered into this relationship. So by this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. He's talking about making Jesus the Lord of our lives. And you know, he's fixing to dive into the heart. So let me just kind of hold that thought for just a minute. And we're going we're gonna to walk through this and see how he moves straight to the heart. So again, when, when I read about commandments, I begin to think about lists. Okay, here's the list of things I need to be doing. And if I'm doing all those things, I must be saved. And that's really not what John's trying to say. There is a way for us to look good on the outside and still be dead on the inside. Okay, There is a way for us to, to be uh, conformed to list and, and, and societal norms and what people expect of us. And, and we, can, we can go down the list and try to check things off. We don't get it perfectly, but we can look good on the outside and still be rotten on the inside. And so he's saying here that this is how we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. And then he's going to give us an example here. Okay, He says, whoever says, I know him, in other words, I'm, I'm a believer, I've come to know Jesus but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, let's, let's do this. Let me, let me just go ahead and, and, and jump down just a second. Let's look at verse 7, because this is going to help it make a little more sense. He says, Beloved, in verse 7, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. In other words, I'm not changing the rules here. I'm not doing what the Gnostics were doing, saying, hey, here's some additional information that you need to do, and it's a, it's a new commandment that you've got to keep. He said, I'm not giving you a new commandment, but what I'm doing is I'm reminding you of the old commandment that you had from the very beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard, so you've already been taught this. However, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. So you're saying, whoa, now John's talking out of both sides of his mouth. How can it be an old commandment, but it be a new commandment? How can he say it's not a new commandment, but yet it is a new commandment? What is he saying? Remember when Jesus came and he was walking upon the earth, and the Pharisees were trying to trap him, and they came to him and said, Hey, what's the most important commandment? Uh, what's, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, The greatest commandment is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is like it, which is what? To love your neighbor as yourself. Was Jesus doing away with the Ten Commandments? Not at all. The first half of the Ten Commandments is what? Loving God with all your heart, all your soul. There shall be no other gods before you. You shall not use my name in vain. You're, you're, the first half of the Ten Commandments is loving God with all of our heart. Second half of the Ten Commandments is where it gets down to don't steal, don't, don't commit adultery, you know, these things with you and your neighbor. So, so he's summarizing, he is, he is boiling down the... The the law into two things. If you love God with all your heart and you love your neighbor as yourself, guess what? You're fulfilling the Ten Commandments. So John's saying here, look, I'm not giving you a new law. I'm just I'm boiling it down the way that Jesus did. I'm saying that what's important here is that you love God with all your heart, and that will be evident in the way that you love other people with all of your heart. So he says, I'm 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 not giving you something new. I'm building upon what's old. But we're we're going back to what Jesus said was a summary of those two uh, those two things: is to love God. And to love your neighbor. So now when we go back up here in in verse 3 and we say, this is how we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. What were his commandments? To love God and to love others. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. He's just saying, I I want you to focus on what you need to be doing. Here here it is. I want you to love God. and I want you to love him with all your heart. And then you know what? I want you to let that translate into the fact that you're going to love your neighbor the way that Jesus loved his neighbor's. So, what is it that stirs this kind of a love in our hearts? What is it that stirs us to love God with all of our hearts? Well, he's just given us that in verse 2. He was the propitiation for all of our sins. When, when I let that sink in and I realized what Jesus did to bring me to faith in God, that stirs a love in me for God. That God could have just said, you know what, you blew it, you're doomed. But God didn't do that. God says, yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you can't save yourself. Yes, you are in trouble and you are headed for a terrible ending. But I'm going to send my son and he's going to die in your place and he's going to pay for your sins. And if you will put your faith in what Jesus has done on your behalf then your sins can be forgiven. John's just said that in 1 John 1, 1.9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all the unrighteousness, right? So what he's saying is, is, is real simple here. What, what we have to, to stir our hearts and to change our hearts is what Jesus has done on our behalf. And once we come face to face with the grace that he's poured out by paying for the sins of the world, that ought to stir in us this genuine love for God. So when we go to the Bible and we read about something that we ought to be doing, or something that we ought not to be doing, it ought to stir in us this desire to be pleasing to God. Not just rule keepers, but people whose hearts are engaged. And because our hearts are engaged with God, it changes the way that we relate to Him and the way that we relate to others. So he says, whoever says that, I know Him. Yeah, me and Jesus, we are just like this. But I'm not keeping His commandments, then I'm just lying. And and the truth is not in me. Because you cannot separate Jesus from his word. You can't say, I love Jesus, but I don't care for his word. You can't say, I love Jesus, but I'm not going to do what he's asking me to do. You can't say, Jesus and I are in this great big relationship together, but you know what? I really don't care for the things that he cares for. That's that's not possible. And and if you say that, you're lying. And the truth is not in you. You're void of the truth. But, he says in verse 5, whoever keeps his word... In him, truly the love of God is perfected. So whoever keeps his word, whoever values God's word, uh, and, and that's, that's what it's saying here. The, the word keep means to safeguard. So it's a picture of somebody giving you something of, of great value, and, and, and in order for you to keep it, you're going to safeguard it. You're going you're to put it in a lockbox. You're going to, to do something to make sure that it doesn't get taken away, that it doesn't get stolen. You highly value it and you safeguard it. That's what it means to keep the commandments, is that we're highly valuing the commandments. And the reason that we highly value the commandments is that we highly value the God that gave us the commandments. So if you say, hey, I know him or I highly value him, but you're not keeping his commandments, you're not valuing his commandments, then you're a liar and the truth's not in you. But if you keep his word, then in him truly the love of God is perfected. It is, it is complete. It's obvious. And by this, by the keeping of his word, because we love him, okay, we may know that we are in him. There's that assurance that John's trying to give to his readers. By this we may know that we are in him, And then he says this, watch, this is, this is great. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So here's these Gnostics saying, listen, man, you know, we're, we're, we're tight with God. But we really don't put much value upon God's word. Remember the Gnostics, by separating the, the physical and the spiritual, we talked about this last week, but by separating the physical and the spiritual, what they would do is they would say, it doesn't matter what you do in the physical, all that matters is that you are pure spiritually. And they would separate their, their spirit from their body so their body could sin and do whatever they wanted to do to gratify the flesh. And they would still claim that they were right with God because their spirit was still clear and still pure. And, and John's saying, guys, that's, that's not true. You can't ignore the Word of God and still claim to be walking with God. And so he says, here's, here's the things that bring you assurance. You keep His Word, and the love of God okay, is perfected. So he's coming back to this issue of love, not just a, a, an outward thing, but a heart thing, the heart that's engaged. And the love of God is perfected. And, and when the love of God is perfected inside of us, then guess what happens? We began to walk as Jesus walked. It always starts on the inside, and it works its way out. You can be a good, sweet, generous, moral person and be spiritually dead on the inside. There are great philanthropists who give millions and millions and millions of dollars away to good causes that still don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Are they good people? From a human perspective, we would say, sure. But it's got to start on the inside. And, and here's what happens. If, if you try to just take God's word and say, okay, let me write down all the things that I'm supposed to be doing and all the things I'm not supposed to be doing. and If you boil Christianity down to that checklist, okay, you can force yourself to try to live by that standard. You, you won't hit it every time. But the truth is, even those of us who want our hearts engaged don't hit it all the time, Okay. But here's what you can do. You can live by that list and never have your heart truly engaged with God. And John says, if that's the case, then then you miss it. So he's not focusing just upon keeping the letter of the law, but he's saying this, this love of God should be perfected to the point that then what flows out of you is this, this walk that looks a lot like Jesus's walk. We're going to be about the same things that Jesus is about. We're going to walk in step with Jesus. And, and that makes us authentic. So what he's saying here is if, if you, whoever says that you abide in him, you ought to walk the same way in which Jesus walked. When he says you ought to, he's not giving you that option, but he's saying this is the expectation. When Jesus lives inside of you and he truly transforms your heart, there ought to be an outward expression of that. Okay, It's proof of his presence in your life. And the proof of his presence in your life is what gives you the assurance that things are right with God. Then he says in verse 7, uh, again, these, these Gnostics claim to have this new knowledge. He says in verse 7, Behold, I'm writing to you no new commandment. There's nothing new, like the Gnostic said. But I'm giving you the old commandment that you had from the beginning. And the old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So watch this. The old commandment, they were talking about the Ten Commandments. Okay, The Gnostic says, oh, we've got a new commandment. He says, no, there's nothing nothing additional that you need to, to know. But I'm boiling it down simple for you, John says. It sounds like a new commandment because the new commandment is this, to love God and to love people. To love God and to love others. And he says here that, that this is the new commandment that I'm writing to you, and that is true in Christ. It's literally not hidden. The, the, when it, That word true means to be revealed, to, 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 to be made known, not, not hidden any longer. And so this, this is, he says this new commandment is made known in Christ, and it also should be made known in you. And the reason is that the darkness is passing away. It's being extinguished. The darkness is going to be no more. The true light is already shining. In the Gospel of John, uh, John refers to Jesus as the light of the world over and over and over again. Okay? Here John's using some of that same terminology saying, listen, what, what happens is, how do you get the darkness to pass away? If this room went pitch black, how do you get the darkness to go away? Turn on the light. What did God do? Well, he came into a dark world. And what did Jesus do? He shined the light. If we want the darkness in our world to be expelled, you know what we've got to do as believers? We've got to shine the light. We've got to shine the light. It's not, listen, I know we're in the middle of a political season, and this is not a political message. It's not the politician's place to drive the darkness out. It's, It's our place as believers in Christ. And and we can sit back and talk about Washington or talk about Baton Rouge or talk about Lake Charles or talk about whatever. But the reality is this. It's our responsibility to be the light of the world, to walk as Jesus walked. If he walked and was the light of the world and he drove out the darkness, guess what? Then we need to be doing the same thing. This world's not going to change because somebody passes a new law. The world's going to change because the church is going to stand up and be the light of the world and show the world a difference. So Jesus came. Watch this. He came and he was the true light. And because of that, the darkness was passing away. Okay, It was being extinguished because the true light is already shining. The darkness cannot overpower light. Light always overpowers darkness. Darkness comes because the light doesn't shine. But the minute the light shines, it overpowers the darkness. And the same thing is true. You know, Jesus said, I'll establish my church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. We, we have this, this light in us. And so he says, take your light and make sure you're not hiding under a bushel. You don't stick it underneath the bed, but you, you put your light on the stand and you let it shine so that the world can see. And so he's painting this picture of darkness and light. And he's saying, this new commandment that I give to you, to love God and to love others, I'm writing to you. Because here's what happened. God gave the Word in the Old Testament, but Jesus was the Word. In the New Testament. And and here we see, he says, I'm writing it it out for you. And it's true in him. In other words, Jesus lived it out for us. And we ought to be living it out for our world. And the reason that we do that is that the darkness is passing away. It's being extinguished. And the true light is already shining. So darkness can't overpower his light. When the light shines, the light wins. The darkness only wins when we don't shine his light light. So he's calling us to be this light of the world. And then he follows up with that same imagery. Listen to this. Whoever says he is in the light, okay? And yet he hates his brother is still in darkness. Here's where John really gets to the heart. Hatred is not something that you necessarily can see, right? I can hate somebody and disguise it. I could hate you and then hug your neck on Sunday morning and say, oh, God bless you, brother. How are you doing? And still have hatred in my heart for you, right? We we get good at disguising hate. But John says the world's looking at the outside and say, oh, that's a good person. They smile and hug my neck. But he says what really matters is the heart. And here's where he goes to the heart. Whoever says that he's in the light and yet there's darkness in his heart? then he's still in the darkness. He that says, oh, on the outside, look at my, my life, i am got it all together, but still harbors sin on the inside, is still in the darkness. Because the light has got to start on the inside, and then it shines outward. So he's, he's, he's driving this point home that it all begins in the heart. He doesn't pick. John, John could have picked any sin in the world. He could have said, Whoever says that he loves God and commits adultery is lying. That's external. You can see that, you can verify that. He doesn't do that. He says, even if your heart's not right, then then you're fooling yourself. You're lying to yourself. You're still in the darkness because darkness and light do not commingle. When the light is on, the darkness is driven out. They they can't occupy the same space. And and if you're saying that you can keep this darkness inside of you and still be in fellowship with God, then you're not, and you're still in the darkness. But whoever loves his brother, here's the rest of that heart issue, whoever loves his brother is abiding in the light. And in him, the light, in Jesus, there is no cause for stumbling. Stumbling. So if you love your brother, then you are in Christ. And and, and in Christ, there's there's no cause for stumbling. The the darkness uh, will not cause you to stumble because in Jesus, you can see clearly. And in Jesus, there is no darkness. But whoever hates his brother, here we go back to that, is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So John says, we've got to examine our hearts. Here's, here's, here's kind of, let me put this in a nutshell so far. The best way I can, can, can probably say it is this. He, he starts off talking about how the fact that there ought to be a change in our heart because of what Jesus did on the cross. The payment that he made for our sins. And that ought to stir in us this desire now to be pleasing to God. We won't always get it right, and when we don't, we have a, a, a God, who's, who's Jesus, who's before the Father, and he, is, and he is advocating for us, because we're not always going to get it right, because our hearts are going to go astray from time to time, but, but there ought to be something inside our heart that stirs us to want to live a life that's pleasing before the Lord, and when we live this life that's pleasing before the Lord, then it's evident in the way that we treat our brother, it's evident in the, the, the things that are in our hearts that are there, and so we've always got to be examining our heart and making sure that our heart is right. If our heart has hatred toward our brother, then there's still some darkness there that needs to be worked upon. And if we don't deal with that darkness, then we're going to walk in the darkness. We're not going to know where we're going, and we're going to be blind to the the sin that's in our lives. But if we'll allow the Lord to come and stir our hearts and fill it with love, that's going to change how we treat our brother. If the love of God takes root in our life, It is the fuel that's needed for us to love God and the fuel that's needed for us to love other people. And what begins to happen is that that hatred is driven out. Watch this. When the love comes in, that's the light. When the light comes into a room, what happens to the darkness? It's driven out. Okay, When when the love of God is allowed to take root in my heart, you know what it's going to do to the hatred that's in my heart? It's going to drive it out. Because those two things cannot coexist. I can't say I love God and I hate my brother. Jesus said that's, that's not true. I, I can't say that I love God and, and I hate God's word. And I'm not going to do that. When the love of God takes place, it drives the darkness out of our lives. So if you want to grow and mature and become more and more like Jesus Christ, then we need to be praying that, that God's love would take root in our hearts, that it would expose anything that's there. And, and John in chapter 3 of the book of John, he talks about how that the, those that are walking in darkness fear coming into the light for the fear that their deeds are going to be exposed. Guys, here's the neat thing, is that we don't need to be afraid to bring our lives, our hearts, even the darkness of our hearts before the Lord, because even as he exposes that, he drives that darkness out, and there is a freedom in that. And so he says, don't walk in, in, in darkness. Don't be blinded by the darkness. Don't you just wander around not knowing where you're going. Those are things that blind people do. You've been given the light, and in Jesus there's no cause for stumbling then in verses 12, 13, and 14, he writes something kind of in a poetic form. He's, he's going to use this thing talking about the little children to the fathers and then to the, the young men. And, uh, and he's going to say uh, kind of for repetition, he says it twice so that it, it kind of hits home. And, and, and that's the way they would do in, in this language is you would write something a couple times to make it more of an emphasis. He says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Then he starts over. I'm writing to you children because you know the father. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you're strong because the word of God abides in you and because you have overcome the evil one. When we read this in the English it's 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 poetic but it's it's maybe a little less impactful than it was in the Greek. Greek language is a a tough language. Uh, I do not profess to be a master of the Greek language. But we in English, we have three tenses. We have uh, past, present, and future tense. So I can talk about something that happened yesterday, something that's happening today, or something that will happen tomorrow. In the Greek, there was actually seven different tenses that they used. And in this passage, we see him using a couple different tenses. And then in in this Greek tense, they also have, you know, you got your passive and active. Passive tense is something that happens to you. Okay, he was run over by a car. Active is something that we do. He ate dinner. Okay. Um, So... In this, in this deal, let me just break it down for you. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. In, this, in this, this verb of are, where he says your sins are forgiven, it's written in what's called the perfect passive tense. Perfect tense is a tense that means something that happened in the past, but continues to have impact today. Okay? So it happened then, but the effects of it continue to linger. Most of these verbs that are in this section are talking about something that happened in the past, but continues to have an influence or an impact on your life today. And that's what this verb is. Your sins are forgiven. Way back then, when you came to Christ, your sins were forgiven. But guess what? They're still being forgiven now, and they're going to continue to be forgiven in the future. Okay, So your sins have been forgiven, and they were forgiven for his name's sake. So in other words, you carry his name and you carry his forgiveness because you're his child. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him. That word know, again, is this perfect, active, indicative tense. And it says that, that, that you know him. You, you have known him in the past, you know him now, and you will continue to be in that relationship with him. So fathers, you've, you've known him, that, that old commandment, you knew that. You continue to know the new commandment, and you're going to carry that forward and know it in the future. And so he says, hey, there's, there's nothing new for you. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. You have, perfect tense. In the past, you're continuing to overcome today. And by the grace of God, you're going to continue to overcome tomorrow. Okay, We are more than overcomers in Christ." So, there's that perfect active tense. It's something that they're doing. And then he says, I write to you children because you know the Father. That perfect active indicative. You, it's something that you're doing. It's not being done to you, but it's something that you've done in the past, that you're doing now, and you will continue to do. You've, you have known, you do know, and you will continue to know the Father. And I'm writing to you fathers because you know Him. Again, this is perfect tense. You've known him in the past and you will continue to know him today and, and again tomorrow. And then he says, I write to you young men. And this is where he changes tenses. He goes to the present tense. I write to you young men because you are strong right now. God has made you strong. You are strong. The word of God, present tense abides in you right now. And then he changes back to the perfect tense and you have overcome. You have overcome, you are overcoming and you will overcome. So he mixes up these tenses a little bit to make a point. He's saying, listen, the stuff that happened to you when you first came to Christ, it still should have an effect in your life now. It's not something that we get over. It's not something that happened way back then, and then whatever we do the rest of our life doesn't matter. When when we come to Jesus, and and this is where some people kind of maybe miss it, okay? You say, "Are, are you a believer? Oh, yeah, I'm a believer. Oh, really? Tell me about it. Well, back when I was six years old, I said a prayer, asked Jesus in my heart, and got baptized. Okay, but what's that doing today and how's that going to impact tomorrow? Well, it's just, I, I mean, I know when I die I go to heaven. He's writing in the perfect tense saying what happened back then should still be having an effect today and it ought to have an effect for the rest of your life. That's what the perfect tense does and that's the tense that, that John wrote in here. He's saying what, what, what we say happened back then ought to still be having an effect now and an effect in the future. How's that combating what these Gnostics were saying? Because the Gnostics were saying, you know, hey, you know, you, you, what happened back then is not going to have any effect right now, and you need our knowledge in order to move forward. And, and John's saying, no, no. What Jesus did back then, he signed, sealed, and delivered, okay? It's all there. So in this passage today, if I'm trying to wrap up what, what John is trying to say, he's saying that Jesus makes a very real difference when he enters our lives. And if I can say, I was saved when I was six years old or eight years old or 12 years old, and it has no difference in my life right now. Either I'm really out of fellowship or or that wasn't the real deal. There's something that's happening here. He's he's giving us some proof that, that when Jesus comes in, Jesus begins to change everything. He changes the love that I have for God. He changes the love that I have for others. It's not that we don't sin and it's not that we're going to be perfect. And I don't want you to hear this message and go, oh my gosh, I sinned last night. I must not be a Christian. That's not what John's, John's trying to write for assurance. But part of the assurance that John's trying to give us, there ought to be some proof in our lives of the difference that Jesus has made. And that difference that Jesus made was back then. It should be now. And it should linger into eternity. And that's what John's trying to say here. He's saying, listen, if, if you can say, yeah, I, I got saved, I got baptized, and I, I'm just going to live my life right now, and I have no regard for what God wants, I'm just living for what I want. John would say, either you've slipped way back, or, or what you profess that you had, I'm walking in light, is really just darkness. And so he's giving us assurance for those who still see the lingering effect of what what would happen when we came to Christ. But he's also giving a warning for those who say one thing and yet there's no proof there in their life right now. Does that make sense? So you can't have assurance without also having a a, a way to to prove that. And so he's saying, "Here's, here's what Jesus does. He comes in and he makes a difference at that moment of salvation. But then he makes a difference in every moment since then, from now until the time that Christ returns. And he's saying, if you, if your heart's not there, you you may, you may be moral and you may be decent and you may help your neighbor, but if your heart's not engaged, if your heart hasn't been changed by Jesus, okay, then something is still lacking because Jesus comes into our hearts and he changes our hearts. He changes our attitude and that changes our actions, So he is the light, and when his light enters us, it drives out the darkness. So what that says to me is this. If I look in my heart and I still see some darkness that's there, it's it's not that Jesus is not there. Sometimes I petition off part of my heart. Okay, Lord, I'm going to give you this area of my life, but I'm going to keep this part to myself. What I need to do is open that up and let his light come in, expose that darkness, and drive it out. And that's called sanctification when we give more and more and more of ourselves to the Lord then his light flushes out that darkness and his light allows us then to be filled with more and more of him so just because there's a piece of darkness inside of you doesn't mean that that Jesus is not in your heart but what he does he comes in and then he works his way through every room of our house if you could picture your life as as a big house with multiple rooms And you walk into this house and all the doors are shut. And you flip on the light in the den. Does that put on light in the bedroom? Not necessarily. But as you open up that bedroom door and you flip on the bedroom light, then that light is illuminating that bedroom. And what Jesus does when he comes into our lives, guys, is over our lifetime, he walks through every single room, the attic, the cellar, everywhere, and he flips on the light. He says, let's work on this part of your heart today. And because your heart's been transformed by his grace and by his love, you say, all right, Lord, what do you see? Well, I see this. All right, let's deal with that. And there's things in your heart that you may not even realize were there. Things tucked away in a closet somewhere. And he goes and flips on the closet light and says, "Ah, here's some more. And that's part of the maturing. And that's part of the, the, the growth that God does. And so, What we ought to want to do as believers is to come before the Lord and say this, Lord, look, there's nothing in my heart, nothing in my life that's off limits. There's not a room in this house that you can't go in. It's not beauty and the beast. You can go everywhere but the library. No. You can go anywhere you want to go. Because this life belongs to you. And Lord, if you see things in my life that don't belong, attitudes in my heart that are not right, if you see that I'm not loving my brother the way that Jesus loved people, then I want you to flip on the light. And I want you to illuminate that. And I want you to help me to to have that transformed. Why? So that I can walk as Jesus walked. Because as I walk as Jesus walked, guess what happens? There is an assurance that comes that I belong to him. That's what John's headed for in this. It's not secret knowledge. It's not some kind of a secret handshake. It is allowing the light to penetrate every part of the darkness of our lives. And that's what Jesus wants to do. And that's what John says. That's the secret to being in fellowship with God is that you open every door and you say, Lord, let your light penetrate every area of my heart. Some of you here this morning, probably all of us here this morning, There's there's room for us to open up to God and say, God, come and search me. Like David did in the Psalms. Lord, search me and try me and know me and see if there's any wickedness within me. It was David's prayer. I don't want any sin residing in me. I want to make sure that as best I understand, as best I know, that I'm giving it all to you. And that's when the light of Christ shines the brightest in us. And that's when the light of Christ can begin to drive out the darkness, not just in my heart, but in the world around me. That's the answer that our world needs. That's the solution that the world is waiting for. They don't know it. They're blinded. They're stumbling in the darkness. They don't understand that. But part of that rests on us because we've not been the light that we're called to be. So we need to start by saying, Lord, look, Shine the light on me. Look in every dark crevice of my heart. And if you find some wickedness is there, let me know so that I can confess it. Because if I will confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me of all the unrighteousness. And let him flip on that light. And let's clean it out. And then let's let him do that. Why? Because he died for me. And man, I tell you what, all I want to do is to live for him. Let's pray.